Mindfulness Mode 448. It was the smashing of my ego on the rocks that brought me to my knees. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, have you ever had trouble falling asleep? Do you ever lay there and wonder, oh man, what am I going to do? How am I ever going to drop off to sleep? And maybe you toss and you turn and you get up for a few minutes and you lay down again. Well, I have a guided meditation which can help you with this. You deserve to sleep naturally and easily and deeply. And with this meditation, it can help you do exactly that. I've had great feedback. People who have listened to this meditation have found it very helpful. So you can have that meditation for free by being a Mindful Tribe listener right here on the show. It's mindfulnessmode.com forward slash sleep. So download that for free. Today, we have a wonderful guest on the show, and I truly think you'll enjoy this. He is a person who lives lives in Canada, as I do, but he lives on the West Coast. He lives in the Vancouver area, and wow, he has really accomplished a lot in his life and lived a very exciting life so far, and you're going to hear about some of the excitement. He had a, a very close call in his life where he nearly died, and he talks about that experience on the episode today, but he has written at least 15 books. And I love the titles of these books. Don't read this. Your ego won't like it. Don't read this unless you want more money. <laughs> I I love his, his strategy. And uh, I, I just really enjoy talking with him and spending time with him. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview today with Dov Barron. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I have a very, very fascinating guest with me today. And uh, we were just having a little chat before I hit record. And wow, this is going to be a a most interesting interview. I have Dove Barron with me today. Hey, Dove, are you in mindfulness mode today? Absolutely. That's great. (laughs) I don't know any other way. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you. But let's get started by by me just asking you, what does mindfulness mean to you? You know, I, I'm really glad that this is the opening question because I think I I know that mindfulness is misconstrued by so many people. That mindfulness is sitting on a cushion meditating. That's meditation, not necessarily mindful. Uh, one of my great teachers, Pathasarajay, asked me, "When do you meditate?" And I said, well, you know, in the morning, and if I get stressed, I'll meditate. And he goes, don't meditate when you're stressed. And I said, why? And he goes, irritated mind, irritated meditation. First, you must become mindful before you meditate. So mindfulness is about being present, being totally, absolutely present. And this is where people get mistaken. Being present, what it means to me is you are with whatever you're with. So if I'm pissed off, I'm with pissed off. If I'm upset, I'm with upset. If I'm with joy, if I'm in joy, I'm with joy. I'm, that's being mindful. It's recognizing where I am so that I can be mindfully with it so that it can pass over me. Dove Barron helps individuals, corporations, and organizations to generate exponential growth and fierce loyalty. So yeah, I just want to take this time to share a little bit more about you, Dove. He's an author, a radio host, and a leadership expert. And uh, he's also the founder of Full Monty Leadership. You can find him at fullmontyleadership.com. And he's an author, uh, like I said, as well, and has written over 15 books. He's the founder of a number of other interesting organizations, and he's a podcast host for a terrific podcast which is called leadership and loyalty tips for executives so like i said look for him at fullmontyleadership.com but i want to go back to a few years ago and and i know you've you had a, a terrible accident that later you said it was the greatest gift you ever could have received could you tell us what happened Sure. Uh, the, the simplicity of it was that uh, 
by the time June 1990 came along, um, I'd already been speaking for six years. I started speaking in 84, and I was having more success than I'd ever known before. And on that particular day, I woke up feeling a very familiar sense of uh, power and certainty about my life. Uh, little did I know that by the end of that day, that would all be gone. It would be smashed to pieces. Um, I was an adrenaline junkie back in those days. Mm -hmm. And on that particular day, uh, I was with a friend of mine up in a place called Brandywine Falls, which is by Whistler, where the Winter Olympics were in 2010. And we went to see Brandywine Falls, which is this magnificent, majestic glacial waterfall. The water, it just swirls down off the top of the glacier, winding and twisting until it plummets off the edge of a cliff at 200 feet. And you can imagine this thunderous waterfall. It's absolutely magnificent. And we were at the top looking over and I said, let's go down, let's hike, you know, so we jumped the fence and hiked down. You're not legally allowed to do that. We jumped the fence, hiked down. It took us about 45 minutes, we got to the bottom. And when we got to the bottom, we were standing probably uh, 500 yards away from the waterfall. And I said to my friend, let's see if we can get behind the waterfall, which is kind of crazy to do because you've got uh, about uh, 70 mile an hour winds coming at you that off the spray. You're walking across wet, mossy rocks. It's pretty dangerous. But again, I was an adrenaline junkie. So that's what we did. And we found our way behind the waterfall in this small gap and where you are, you're basically bathing in negative ions, which are a positive uh, energy for the body. The body turns that into a positive energy. So when I came out on the other side, I felt like Superman. I felt completely indestructible. And being an adrenaline junkie, said to my friend, well, let's not hike back. And he's like, well, what are we going to do? I go, let's climb the face. Now, if you know anything about climbing, you might go, well, okay, climbing, that's kind of crazy. But, but climbing's not crazy because if you're mountain climbing, you have ropes, you have safety lines, you have the right shoes, you have all that kind of gear, and you have a partner. Uh, free climbing is a little crazier because you don't have the ropes and the lines and all the other things, and you're just climbing up. Free climbing while soaking wet in the wrong outfit with no chalk, that's insane. And that's what I began to do. And at about 120 feet, I reached for a rock to pull me up to the next level. And that rock dislodged and bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down at maximum velocity onto the boulders below. Not rocks, not gravel, not grass, boulders that split me open and smashed me to pieces and completely opened up my head and many other places were smashed. And I can tell you the gory details of that. Uh, we don't really need to know, but what I can tell you is I died five times over the next short period of time, uh, was completely demolished in every possible sense of the word, and uh, life as I knew it and that power that I'd woken up with that morning was gone, and I honestly felt like it would never come back. Wow. Wow. And how did you move through that to the point where you you regained your confidence and your strength and, and the ability to move forward? The, the, there's a trick even in your question, and it's the trick that I played on myself. You know, how did I regain? You know, so when people would, when I was in recovery, I've had, I think, 12 reconstructive surgeries. And when I was in recovery, people would say to me in that first nine months or so, how are you doing? Now, remember, I'm a, I was born in a ghetto in Northern England. I've been a boxer, I've been a martial artist, and I've been a leader all my life. So I'm not going to let stuff get me down. So when somebody say, how are you doing? My answer was, I'm great. I'm coming back. Well, the truth of the matter is that's not how life works. There is no back. There is no back. And I was saying this with my jaw wired closed, trying to prove to myself and everybody else that I was okay. But the truth was in silence in my own time, it, when I was with myself, I would become deeply, darkly depressed and just couldn't get out of it. I just would spend days in bed with my heads under the blankets and just couldn't even cope. But I would go out occasionally with friends and they'd invite me out and I'd go out and I'd be like, you know, I just... I, I'm a, you know, I'm a playful guy. I have a good sense of humor. I like a good laugh. I couldn't laugh. And so I began to think that, okay, those days are over. I'm never going to laugh again. Until a particular night, I went out with my mates. And we're having this great night out. And I actually laughed. And I was feeling like, okay, I, you know, I'm coming back. I'm starting to recover. This is good. I laughed. That's a really good sign. And as I came home, I came through the back porch. 
And as I opened the back door, the light from out on the porch flooded into the kitchen. And as it did, I could see festooned across the floor garbage everywhere. There was empty cans and meat containers and kitty litter and coffee grinds. It was disgusting and it smelled horrible. And I went from feeling full of fun to full of rage. Mm. I was insanely mad. And I marched through the house. Now, remember, I'm the guy who studied Buddhism and all those kinds of things. I marched through the house and I am in full rage looking for the culprit because I know exactly who did this. And when I get into the living room, I see the culprit curled up on the couch looking all comfy. And I lifted my hand to strike. But that's not who I am. And about halfway down, some part of me clicked in and went, stop. And instead of striking my cat, I lifted it up. And I held the cat in my arms and it was cold. And I realized the cat was dead. And I fell to my knees and began to weep. Not cry, weep, like sobbing. And I was there a few minutes, and I suddenly realized, why am I sobbing? I didn't like this cat. It wasn't my cat. It had been given to me as a manipulation. I didn't want it there. So why was I so upset? And I realized in that moment that I was weeping for the death of who I was. The Buddhists talk about, and my Buddhist teachers taught me, that we must embrace the little death. And instead, I had not embraced this death that I had gone through, this death experience, the death of my identity, the death of everything that I'd held as, since, as familiar and certain was gone. I'd kept saying, I'm coming back. There is no back. There's only forward. And so as I laid there thinking about it and feeling into it and weeping into it, I realized that in front of me there were three paths. Try to go back. I knew that wasn't working. The most seductive one was the middle path. The middle path was the central, easiest path. It was like, this is seductive because it's surrender to this. You're a victim, and you can just remain a victim. You can say you gave it your best, but you're a victim. And that was so seductive because there was nothing to do there. And the third option was to live my life on purpose. Now, if you'd have asked me the day before I fell, was I on purpose? I would have said yes, but I knew in that moment that I had not been. And it was in that moment that I decided that I had to find my purpose fulfill that and bring it to the world and that was the beginning of the change people think the change is when you fall it's not that is called a pivotal moment people have heart attacks and they say okay I, you know i've missed my kids and i'm i'm not going to be a workaholic anymore and then you meet them three months later and they're doing exactly the same pivotal moments don't change us it's the choice point that comes later when everything can go back to normal and you decide no no i'm going to do something different and that was the turning point Wow. Wow. What an incredible story. Now, you studied with masters when you were only seven years old. What led you to that place where you could actually get out there and learn Buddhism and learn some of these things from master people? Um, well, it's <laughs> kind of a weird story to that. Um, we were away camping. When I say we, as in my mom, my stepdad, uh, my siblings and I in a tent in uh, Wales, in, in, uh, in Britain. And in the middle of the night, I sat up and began speaking in some foreign language that nobody understood. And uh, my, uh, my mom was completely freaked out, thought I was possessed, and took me to see the rabbis. Uh, um, because I was born Jewish, and took me to see the rabbis, and I spent some, and they started to explain and help me to understand life beyond the veil, the veil of what we call reality. And that was the beginning of opening myself to that kind of thinking, that kind of understanding. And I continued on in that, uh, even considered going to yeshiva in New York to become a rabbi, but that was not my, not my path. Um, and then when I was 11, my stepfather, um, who was into some interesting stuff, let's call it that, um, realized that I was this really different kid. And for some reason, he was a guy who didn't like me. I didn't like him. Mm. Uh, some reason uh, gave me a book on prana yoga for children. And I began to teach myself prana yoga, which is the yoga of breath, which teaches mindfulness. And that mm -hmm. was the beginning of my path into that. By the time I was 14, I decided that I was leaving the UK and that I was going to travel the world and study different religious philosophies. And that began my journey. So like you said, I went on to study Buddhism, 
Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy. I lived and studied with Buddhist monks. The dean of the Vedanta University in Bombay was my teacher for Buddhist uh, and Vedanta uh, philosophy. And uh, I lived with uh, Bishop William Todd and studied Gnostic Christianity. And so. And do you, do you consider that. yourself a Buddhist now? Not at all. Don't consider myself in anything. Uh, I was just going to ask that. So you studied Gnostic Christianity, but you don't consider yourself a Christian. Tell us about Gnostic Christianity. And and you told me a little bit about it before we hit record, but it's fascinating to me. It is. So most people... and, and I want to I want to preemptively say, um, if you're offended by what I'm saying, I apologize. That's not my intention. Um, but I am going to say what I believe, I've learned, and I am here to share that with you. I'm not, and I have no intention of hurting your feelings or upsetting you. And by the way, I also have no no interest in changing your mind. Um, I, I'll just before I tell you, I'll just explain to you that I used to run a program for the public, um, and it was called Authentic Life Mastery. It was the four quadrants of life, body, mind, emotion, and soul. And in that piece, we would ask people, I'd say, you know, tell me something you believe, and people would, you know, blah, blah, and I'd say, why do you believe it? And so I said, let's test this, okay? And we had a guy, and his name was Franco, and I said, lovely guy. I like Franco a lot. And I said to Franco, uh, okay, let's test one of yours. He goes, okay. I said, tell me something you believe. He goes, I'm a Catholic. And I said, okay, great, why? Silence. Uh, well, I was born a Catholic. Okay, so because you fell out of a Catholic womb in a Catholic household, you're a Catholic. He goes, no, I go to church. I go, oh, so because you go to a church, you're Catholic. So if I went to a church, I'd be a Catholic. He goes, no. I go, then why are you a Catholic? So, he, he, you know, well, my mom and dad are Catholic. So I just looked at him and said, you're not a Catholic. And he goes, what do you mean I'm not a Catholic? I go, you're not a Catholic. If you didn't choose it, it's not yours. Mm. And he was pissed off, mm. very upset. Now, fast forward about three months later, I'm walking down Robson Street in Vancouver. And as I'm walking down Robson Street, I bump into Franco, who I'm fully expecting to try and dodge me because, he, you know, we didn't finish on the greatest of terms. And he comes up and he gives me a big hug and he's so happy to see me. And he goes, Dove, I'm so glad I bumped into you because I've been meaning to, to reach out to you. And I don't know why, but anyway, I'm so glad you're here. And I said, tell me why. And he goes, well, you remember the last time we spoke? And I go, very well. And he goes, you know how much you upset me. And I said, I do indeed. And he said, well, I want to thank you. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me why. And he goes, because I'm a Catholic. And I went, wonderful. Uh... Wonderful. Because it was never my intention for him to not be a Catholic. It was my intention for him to really question why and to own it. I don't care whether you're a Catholic, a Jew, a Muslim, a Buddhist. It doesn't matter. It's what you choose rather than you uh, adopted it. And we live much of our lives on adopted ideas, on adopted beliefs. We, we adopt pieces of things and not really look at, well, what is truth for me? So what is true for me? Some of the best Christians I've ever met are Buddhists. They live their life pretty much in accordance with the teachings of Jesus. Right. They happen to be Buddhists. Uh-huh. Right? So, you know, I don't really, so I have a hard time with the framework. So when I studied Gnostic Christianity, the thing I found fascinating was that in Gnostic, and even in Coptic, but Gnostic particularly, in Gnostic and Coptic Christianity, you discover these missing books um, that were either missing from the Old Testament because they disappeared mm-hmm. um, uh, under the ASEANs, or they were mostly um, edited out by Pope Constantine, who was actually the Emperor Constantine, who adopted Christianity into Rome because he could see that Rome was going to, the empire was collapsing, and this was a way to bring people on board. And so they had a meeting of Antioch in which they edited the uh, the gospels and they removed every powerful woman uh, and they and the women that were left were besmirched as we talked about um, if you mm-hmm. read the Gnostic gospels you'll discover that Mary was never a whore um, that's not what she was she was a healer um, but if you think of it in you have to go back in time and this is always difficult we 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 try to judge things from the lens we have and you can't judge things from the lens you have. Right? You know, if I look at me when I'm 20, I'm an asshole. Mm. But I 
can't look at me that way. I have to understand that when I was 20, I was 20. And who I, I was doing my very best at that time. And sure. I'm glad I evolved. So it's the same thing. So if we look at going back in time, Mary would spend time on her own with Mary Magdalene, would spend time on her own with men. Mm-hmm. She was a healer. But spending time on your own as a woman, when you're an unmarried woman without a man overseeing it, made you a whore. So she became a whore. She was never a whore. So it's the same thing. Mary, as in the mother of Jesus, in the Gnostic Gospels and and even in the Coptic, you'll discover that what she was was actually she was an Essene master, as was Jesus. He was born into an Essene family, which were the great mystics of that time. So, you know, it's not... The Gnostic gives us this background that we hadn't had. We we get to see the books that were were removed and deleted, like the Gospel of Philip, which is very insightful, small little book. You can go read it and go buy it. Now, the, wonderfully, by the way, you can actually get many of these books on Amazon and places like that. When I studied them, which is oof, 40, almost 40 years ago, you know, they were very difficult texts to get a hold of. Mm. Now they're quite widely available. So it, what it does for me, what I love about it is, is it challenges us. When we look at these things, it challenges us to be mindful about our beliefs. Because one of the places we lack mindfulness is in our beliefs. You see, as you're listening to this right now, I've probably challenged some of your beliefs, and that's okay. Here's what I want you to grasp is this. You don't call your beliefs your beliefs. You call them the truth. But they're not the truth. In fact, the gospel, the translation of that word is the truth, but it's not the truth. It was edited. But let's just walk it through one more time. Let's take Old Testament. Originally, was it in English? Of course not. Well, you go, I go, well, what was it? Do you, what, do you, what would you guess, Bruce? Hebrew. No. See, that's, that's the third version. Right. The first, okay. uh, no, the fourth version. The first version was it was an oral tradition. It was not allowed to be written down. Okay. Right. Then it became Essene uh-huh. um, and um, the language of the Essenes, which has just flipped out of my head for a second. Then it became ancient Hebrew. Then it became modern Hebrew, which is what you're referring to, Ivrit. Then from there, it became um, Latin and French and then King James English. We have nine translations. Uh, you know what? Let's just play a game of, I think you guys call it telephone. Yes where I'll say a paragraph, you say it, but say it in a different language and pass it on nine times. I guarantee you what we'll get at the other end will not even resemble what was it. No. So if you think about, I'm, you know, let's take it out of religion for a minute, but let's take it to beliefs. When we shift that into beliefs, we suddenly get a different grasp. There's a wonderful story that uh, was told many, many years ago by a great motivational speaker, and I'm talking about 30, 40 years ago. And he talked about the Christmas ham. And he talked about this woman who's at a mother's, uh, who this woman who's making uh, Christmas ham for her family, uh, and um, she's teaching her daughter how to make the Christmas ham. And as she's making the Christmas ham, she she takes the ham, she she seasons it, she massages it, she does all the great stuff to it, and then she takes a blade and she cuts off the bottom corner of one side. And her daughter says, "Why do we? Why do you do that, Mom? I've noticed that you do that, and I noticed that." You might cook it separately later, but you cut it away. And her mom says, well, that's the way grandma cooks it. And uh-huh. that's what grandma taught me. And she says, but why? Does it make it juicier or something? She goes, I think so. I don't know. She goes, can we call grandma and ask her? She goes, yeah. So they call grandma and said, grandma, we noticed that you uh, you cut the corner off. Uh, the, the mom cuts the corner off the ham. And she said she learned that from you. Why do you do that, grandma? She goes, I don't. She goes, so the, the mother of the little girl says, yeah, you do. I remember when I was a kid. She goes, oh, I did that because I didn't have a pen that was big enough to fit it. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that is what we do. We're unconscious about our behaviors. We're not mindful about our beliefs or our behaviors. We just go, oh, well, this is just the way it is. And every time you say that's just the way it is, you're no longer mindful. So we need to, be, see, so we need to now understand that mindfulness is behavioral, but it's also belief. And, you, and by being willing to question, only then can you become mindful. Anything else is called, this is, this is the big shocker for everybody, everything else is called denial. Mm. So we say, I'm mindful. No, you're not. You're in denial. 
You're swimming with Cleopatra in denial. You are not in mindfulness at all. Mindfulness means actually I'm willing, at the root of mindfulness in, in, uh, in the um, Vedantic is, is understanding that it, in the depth of it, it is to question. It's the willingness to be with and question deeper and go deeper and go deeper. That's fascinating. Such a great story. Such a great story. Now, I know, Dove, that you're you're working on a book. You've actually finished the book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I jotted it down here. It's called... Uh... One Red Thread. Yeah. So tell us about One Red Thread. It's about how to find the purpose that is into, already interwoven into your life. So I meet people all the time, as you know, Bruce, the work that I do with companies and with leaders is about helping them to find their purpose. And, and, you know, uh, Simon Sinek wrote a great book called Start With Why. I highly recommend that to people. But what I like to point out is that's where you start. It's not where you finish. So don't don't finish with why. Start with why. The work we do is purpose. And purpose is the why of your why. It's about getting deeper into it and understanding it at a deeper level because your purpose has been interwoven throughout your life. Mm. It has shown up everywhere. When we do this work, people are like, oh my God, I've been doing this since I was a little kid. And I go, huh? But you disguised it from yourself because you were, it, because here's what happens. As you know, I work with leaders and the things you've done, you, as you listen to this, as you watch this, the things you've done to make you successful, congratulations. That's great. I I tip my hat. I respect what you did to become successful. And you became successful by eliminating certain things from your life. Maybe you had to get more discipline or whatever it was, right? That's great. But the problem is that you've disenfranchised other parts of yourself that you didn't need to get rid of, but you thought you did in order to succeed. The work we do is bringing home the disenfranchised parts teaming it up with the parts that made you successful. When you bring those parts together, you don't just get success, you get fulfillment because you're living a purposeful life. And you see that you've given yourself all these signposts throughout your life. And that book explains how that works. It gives you the formula for finding your own purpose. And you know it's also the, the prerequisite to a brand new course that we're releasing this year, which is called All at Once. And it's the same thing, but it's me video, uh, giving you lessons, uh, 30 lessons of guiding you through this process of finding your purpose. Because listen, success is great. But I promise you, here's the, the challenge is that getting the new shiny object, the new shiny object might be a new partner. The new shiny object might be a car or, or it might be another million in the bank or in, in the case of my, some of my clients, a billion in the bank. But that won't last Mm. it won't last and we pursue that which won't last we we're trained our society trains us to pursue that which won't last and so what happens is we end up unhappy miserable and unfulfilled with a whole bunch of shiny objects if you go look at the rate of suicide for the mega wealthy you'd be shocked it's as high as it's almost on par with those at the very bottom end so the very the upper one percent as in 1%, and the bottom 1% is almost identical suicide rates. That, for me, when I read those stats, I went, wow, that really makes my point. Yeah, I didn't know that. Because if you ask everybody in the everybody in the bottom, will money make you happier? Everybody at the bottom will say yes. Ask everybody in the top, is money making you happier? Who's going to suicide? And they say no. So it, here's the evidence. It doesn't work. But it, the problem is it does work. So I'm contradicting myself. No, I'm not. Here's why. Because it works, but for a very short period of time. It mm-hmm. gives you the dopamine hits. It gives you the, the, the feeling of, oh, this is awesome, but it doesn't last in the sort of emptiness. I remember reading about an Oscar winner who said on the night of getting the Oscar, they weren't present at all. They were overwhelmed. Like, okay, well, that's understandable. I get that. And they, and they said, and I've had the Oscar two years, and I still can't feel it. We're not present. And, and this, this actress said everything she'd done in her life was to get that Oscar. And she, it still hadn't arrived, as in psychologically for her. She had it in her hand. She had it on her mental piece, but it hadn't arrived emotionally, psychologically. I know you said you started out 
poor, did was there ever a time in your adult life when you struggled trying to trying to earn enough money? Uh, ooh, let's think only for about the first forty years. Forty years. <laughs> yeah. So the first first forty years of my life. Um, so let me be clear here. I was not in abject poverty after I was a child. I ended that in my childhood, but I, I had that conditioning in my head that money was hard to get. And I remember being, uh, I remember being 34, I think I was 34 years old and being over at my friend's house and freaking out. And he's like, what, what is the matter with you? And I go, mate, the rent is due in two days. And I, and he goes, uh, uh-huh. and he, go, and I go, they don't have it. I don't have it at all. And he goes, oh, well, that's pretty rough. And we start talking about it. And he's, and by nature of the conversation, he said to me, have you ever missed your rent? And I said, what do you mean? He said, have you ever missed your rent? I go, yeah, I've been late a few times. He goes, no, no, missed. He says, I get you've been late. You know, how late is late? I said, oh, two days. He goes, okay. He said, have you ever missed it? I said, never. He goes, what the, what the freak are you worried about? And it was like, suddenly like, click. It's... So part of my mindset was I can only pay the rent if I struggle. I have to be in the anxiety to have the money. Once I got rid of that, it was like, oh, I don't need the anxiety to pay the rent. That's cool because guess what? It will show up. So, yeah, money was definitely a, a mindset, a belief system that I had to challenge enormously. I uh, think it's interesting what's the titles of some of your books. In 2010, you wrote a book called Don't Read This Unless You Want More Money. Mm-hmm. So you were pretty focused on helping other people bring more money into their lives at that point in time. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. But that was 10 years after. Right. I'm 61 now. So that was, that was when I was about, uh, I think it was in my late 40s by the time I got to that. I wrote that book because I really understood then that, and as it says on the, on the back of that book, everything you know about money, you likely learn from somebody who didn't have it. Yes, that's probably true. Yeah. So, you know, and, and in the book I describe a, 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 a scene, a two scenes running parallel. And on this side is a family sitting around the table having dinner. And on this side is a family sitting around the table having dinner. The family on the right is a family that are poor and I, and a family on the left is a family that are wealthy. And I say, do the family on the right talk about money? And the answer is no. And if they do, it has a lot of negative connotation because there's a lot of stress and anxiety available to it. And the family on the left that they talk about money. Yes. All the time. It's a natural conversation. It's about investment. It's about taking care of your money. It's a, so it's tabooed when you're poor and it's shamed. And on, the, and on the other side, it's not. So if you've learned everything, if you grew up poor, there's a pretty dang good chance that you learned shitty messages about money. They're not, they're not true. They're just terrible messages. And so if you say to me, I'm poor, I would say the same thing as I said to Franco. How do you know? Why? Mm. Take it deeper because it's simply an adopted belief. It's not a truth. It's so interesting to talk to you about this. It, it really, it really is. So do you believe that we attract what we think? No, that's absolute nonsense. And I'll tell you why, because it's, it's like saying that, uh, flour and sugar make a cake. They don't. Are they important ingredients? Yes, but they don't make a cake to make a cake. You need certain ingredients. Let's say five. I'm not pretending I'm a, I'm a baker or anything. Let's say there's five ingredients. So let's say you mix the five ingredients together. Now what? Do you have a cake? No, you have batter. Mm. What do you need? You need heat. Oh, okay. So what if you put it in an oven that's 25 degrees? You say, well, that's hotter than it is out here. Is that enough heat? No. You put it in an oven that's 400 degrees. Does it work? No. So there's a recipe, a way to put things together and the right amount of what you need to do with that recipe. So this idea that you can sit on the couch and be running the secret shit about how, you know, oh, you know, I thought about a red car and the universe is going to deliver a Ferrari with a bow on top that says, thanks for meditating, love the secret. That's absolute <laughs> nonsense. It's not going to happen. There's more ingredients than that. So do we attract everything that shows up in our life? Absolutely, yes. 
Is it by your thought process alone? Absolutely no. That's one ingredient. It's thought, emotion, feeling, belief, resonance. Were you ever bullied or were you ever a bully? And do you have a story you can share with us where maybe mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, uh, both. The answer is yes to both. So uh, I, despite what people think when they look at me, because I have a face that looks like it's been punched, uh, <laughs> or it might punch, um, and so I look tough. I have a physique. I'm a bodybuilder. I've been a boxer. I've been a martial artist. But actually, I'm very sensitive. And when I was a kid, I was very, very sensitive um, and quite timid. And I am naturally um, an introvert. It's, I'm a trained myself to be extrovert. I'm not naturally that. Um, so when I was a kid, I was pretty quiet and pretty shy and very different. I, like I said, I was into these spiritual things that other people weren't. And... Uh, I was also the only Jew in a Christian school, so I got bullied every day. Uh, the kids in school would do this, and I'm like, what is that? Like, you know, this is in the days before show me the hand, but they'd put the, the palm of their hand in my face, show me the five fingers. I'm like, what is that? And it stood for, I found out, the Jews killed our Lord. <laughs> uh, like, that's what he was, and then they would beat the snot out of me. And then I'd be like, you know, I was a smart kid, but I was, you know, I was dumb at understanding what was going on and i was like what are you talking about i don't know who your lord is and i didn't, didn't do anything to him so why are you upset with me I didn't right. get so i i got i got religiously bullied a lot um and that happened way into my teens um on a very regular occasion i was bullied for the way that i looked in that i was a fashion kid. I loved clothes and fashion and I got bullied for that because I grew up in a ghetto and that was not how you dress in the ghetto. Um, and so I am very familiar with that. But what I learned was how to bully. And that was very sad. And, uh, and I carry a lot of very healthy shame about that. Um, what I learned to bully with was the thing that nobody saw as bullying. So I bullied by becoming the savior. I bullied by making people feel like they had to have me and only I could save them. Only I could help them. That's bullying. It wasn't like beating somebody up or telling them they're worthless, but it was, you know, I, it, you know, I, and I would get mad at them if they didn't do what I suggested. That's bullying. So I became a quote unquote spiritual bully. And I know many of those. I, I know many people with a lot of spiritual ego and spiritual bullying. Well, you don't understand. You've not taken all Dobbs courses. You don't understand. You didn't spend time with the Dalai Lama. You don't understand. You didn't do this and you didn't do that. And I've studied that. And I've been here. No, you're a freaking bully. Stop it. That's just bullying. That's making yourself better than everybody else. That's pedestalizing yourself. That's called spiritual ego. You're not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. The person who, who I walk past on the street every day I go to work is a homeless guy. I know his name. I know why he's on the street. I've sat beside him in his pool of piss and had a conversation with him and found out what his life was like. And guess what? He's no different than me, par for some choices about how we see it. But we walk past people and we don't make eye contact and, and we treat them like they don't exist. We other them. We make them invisible. That's not spiritual. And you'd say, oh, yeah, but I'm a Buddhist. Horse crap. Or, oh, yeah, I, you know what? I'm a Christian. Bullshit. You know what? Look at people as humans. Or just be with them. One of my greatest students is, we, I spoke yesterday with him. His new book is coming out. He travels the world to speak around the world. He's brought in by the UN. He's brought in by governments to speak. He's now being brought into police forces. You know who he is? He's a cool. neo-Nazi. He ran war, white Aryan race. He ran that group out of, out of BC and went to the Canadian Supreme Court twice. He's the only guy who's, who Montel walked off on the Montel show. Only guy. I helped de-radicalize him. He now runs a group called Life After Hate, fantastic group that helps uh, people who are part of that movement to come out and change. He speaks about compassion. Uh, 
He's an amazing man and I love him to bits and he's become a good friend. We spoke at the UN together and at the UN they said to me, how can you, somebody born a Jew, mentor a neo-Nazi? And the answer was, it's simple. And he sa they said, why? Nobody's ever sat in front of me who isn't me. And they said, well, you were a neo-Nazi? No. But what made him a neo-Nazi, that exists in me. And because I was willing to see that, I could see the men, not the behavior. Wow. Wow. So, so you were a spiritual bully for years. Oh, yeah. Until I fell. Until, and then that was the, when you stopped being a spiritual bully. That's when I got it. That's when I got it. I'd been a spiritual buddy, a bully. I was, I was bullying people. I was like, you know, you are going to go down this path because this is the path I see for you because I know better than you. And I didn't even know I was spiritually bullying. That's why if you'd have asked me if I was on purpose before I fell, I'd have said yes. But I was a mm. spiritual, egoic bully. I don't know better than you. It's your path, your life. So that's why you said that was a gift. Absolutely. At that moment, and by the way, if, if you go through something traumatic like a cancer or a diagnosis or a bankruptcy or a horrible divorce or something like that, or you fall or you get hit by a bus or something, and somebody says to you, oh, this is a gift, punch them in the nose. They're an idiot. Because that's not a truth in the moment. Mm. We only judge life retrospectively. Right. We all can be spiritual retrospectively. So when, when that happened to me, I was pissed off. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was all those things. And that was good because that's what brought me to my knees. It wasn't the fall that brought me to my knees. It was the smashing of my ego on the rocks that brought me to my knees and having to face that that was destroyed so that I could stop being a, stop being a spiritual bully, stop being so spiritually egoic and realize I'm not better than anybody else. Hmm. Well, that's pretty fascinating. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Dove. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? I would say that that would most likely be Pathasarajay, my uh, Vedantic teacher. He was a great influence on me for that because um, he made me question what it was that I believed. And he asked me that every time that I spoke and every time I believe, uh, I behaved to ask where it came from. And my psychotherapy, which I later became a psychotherapist and trained in family counseling, um, asked me the same thing. It was Jungian work. And the Vedantic, the Gnostic, Kabbalah, and Buddhism are all the same roots as Jungian psychology. So Pathasarajay was the dominant, but there are many. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Well, again, this is going to screw with people's opinions, but uh, mindfulness has uh, affected my emotions because the truth is that being mindful means you are with your emotion. So I don't run away from them. I don't pretend I'm not having them. If I'm sad, I will cry. If I'm angry, you will know. If I'm joyous, you will know. I don't repress or deny anything. I'm willing to be with it. Mindfulness is not about repressing it or shoving it in a box and pretending that you're all home. That's got nothing mm. to do with mindfulness. That's Western bullshit mindfulness. It's got nothing to do with it. What it's to do with is be present with it. Be mindful of it. This is what I'm, okay, this is what I'm feeling. All right, I can be with that. Let me be with this anger. Let me dive deeper into this let me go to the depth of this anger and oh look it's not with me anymore tell us about breathing in your life how is breathing part of your mindfulness practice breathing is uh it has many levels for me so as i said i started out with prana yoga and i still do some of those practices um about uh 15 years ago i as i said i've been speaking since 84 so i've been speaking for 35 years and about 20 years in my voice was gone it was destroyed and my wife decided that she would find somebody who could help me and she found arthur samuel joseph who's one of the leading vocal experts in the world he's worked with every movie star you can think of and we reached out to him and i spent and he flew up here at my house and we spent a day together and he trained me on breathing in order to take care of my instrument Right. So before I speak, I use uh, the breathing exercises that he has taught me and I get carried away. I get excited and I forget my breath and I come back to my breath. 
Um, but breathing for me is something that I do every day in my meditations because I meditate every day. And the, it, you know, it's the way I taught my daughter to, to meditate. She wanted me to teach her to meditate when she was 14. She's now in her forties. And I said, okay. And she said, what do I do? I said, look up into the corner of the room where the walls meet and the ceiling meets. And she was okay. Keep your head straight, but make your eyes go there. She did that. And I said, now focus in on your breath. And I taught her to just breathe, keeping her eyes in steady and just breathe four in hold for four out for eight. So you slow it right down. And that's still the breathing practice I do today. Wow. Great story. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? The book I would recommend about mindfulness is a book that's not nothing to do with mindfulness, but will teach you how to be mindful. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. The book is called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Mm. It is without doubt one of my Bibles. And, and when I say Bible, I mean it's a book to live by. It's small. It's easy to read. It's in sections on friendship, on marriage, on work, on whatever you... There's all these wonderful sections in it. And if you read that... If you read that as a day, every day, just read one small chapter, which is probably five pages every day, it will bring you into mindfulness. It, it will bring you into a state of mindfulness about why you believe what you believe and how you react and how you're seeing things through a certain lens and how the lens may not be your best. Can you share an app which can help people be mindful or maybe your clients use one or you know, there are so many apps out there for these kinds of things. And I will be honest with you, I don't know of one. And I looked at that on the on the questions like, can you recommend an app? And I went, yeah, here's my app. Turn your phone off. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> we are all addicted. Me too. You know, turn the yeah. phone off. And I have to do that. That's my best app. My best application is to turn off my apps. Not not for long, but even it, and my my recommendation to you is while you're working, not while you're meditating, while you're working, turn off your phone for 15 minutes and notice how many times you look over at it, how many times you want to touch it to see if something popped and you realize you've turned it off and you'll realize how addicted you are. 15 minutes a day for, the, for a week, 15 minutes a day, turn off your phone and watch what happens. It's fascinating. It was overwhelming to me. I was shocked at how addicted I was. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You know, uh, we can uh, continue to hear you on your podcast, Leadership and Loyalty Tips for Executives, which is awesome. And I was just going to ask you, you have such an amazing voice. Have you ever done voiceovers? Have you ever done work with your voice? I have. When I lived in Australia, I did voiceovers for commercials. And I, and I did some acting too, but I did voiceover for commercials. But the voices I would do were often character voices. So for instance, I did a Wheaty, which my granddaughter now calls, my, my youngest granddaughter now calls my Martian. Completely made up language. Which I speak like that, but it that was is really cool. And I want to ask you if you'll do it again, because our, our call kind of Skyped out for a second. That is very cool. And as well as that, and, and many, many accents. I could speak to you as a Scotsman, if you prefer that, you know, because, because that's an easy one. Um, I can speak to you in an Irish accent, if that's what you prefer. Or, or, or a Cockney accent, you know, me and the old, me and the old bread knife are going down the old rubber dub dub for a pint of the old laughing sister tonight. Yeah, you can do that too. can do many accents. I think I have 47 voices last time we counted. That's a long time ago. Wow, 47 voices. And if you go online and search for my name and meditation, you'll find that I have audios of my meditations uh, that are floating around somewhere on the web. There's lots and lots of them. Um, I produced a bunch of them um, with uh, all kinds of great background music and, and it's all my voice. Uh, so there's, there's lots of those kinds of things if you're interested. 
So check it out. Check out the book One Red Thread, which is coming out soon. And of course, your course all at once. And I'm sure we can find out about these at fullmontyleadership.com. Is that right? And indeed. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Go to fullmontyleadership.com and you can find out about all those things. And uh, we'll even give you a gift if you go to fullmontyleadership.com forward slash gift. We've got a gift for you. There's all kinds of great stuff there. That's great. Well, it's been a gift to me and a gift to our listeners for you to be on the show today. So thank you so much, Dove, for being here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate you being on, uh, having me on. And what I just want to say to everybody is this. Information is worth the hole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. Don't listen to this and go, oh, that was great. And then forget it because Monday will come. And with Monday, all the usual pressures. Put it in action. Do something with it. And what's more is I would ask you to write to me, write to Bruce, CC us, tell us what you got out of the show and what you're going to do with it. My, I'm going to give you my private email. It's dovdov at dovbaron.com, dov at dovbaron.com. Write to me. Tell me what you got out of the show. CC Bruce. Let him know what you got out of the show. If there's some way I can be of help to you or service to you, that's why I'm here on the planet. Reach out to me. Let's talk about what it is that I can do to help you. And on top of that, listen, Bruce, you know, if you go back and look at uh, the archives of this show, he's had some amazing guests. He takes the time to find amazing guests for you. He doesn't get paid for this. He's doing this because this is a service to you. So pay attention to that. How does he know whether you're listening? You go and subscribe, rate and review the show and tell your friends, share it with others. Let him know that you are seeing the show, you're listening to the show, and it rocks. Tell him how much you appreciate it. Tell him what you got out of this one. Tell me, but share that together. Thank you so much, Dove. I really appreciate that. And of course, my email is bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. So yeah, CC me, get, get that email out there. Thank you again. This has been a great conversation, Dove. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, this sleep naturally guided meditation that I have for you just for Mindful Tribe members. It's to help you receive the deep, easy sleep that you deserve. Sleep naturally and you'll be able to fall asleep easily, get more work done tomorrow and feel better about it. Rest comfortably without effort. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash sleep for your free download. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.